Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Quick review, just what we've been studying over these three weeks. Um, let's see here. In our first lesson, we talked about the tabernacle's construction uh, and its original significance in um, in the time and place where God gave it at Sinai for, uh, for the people of Israel as they began their covenant relationship uh, through the Mosaic covenant with God. Uh, and then in the second lesson... Last week, we talked about the tabernacle's priesthood and sacrifices. And of course, we spent some time discussing uh, atonement and how uh, sin was handled through um, through the tabernacle, as well as how it uh, points us toward the final fulfillment of atonement in Jesus Christ. And then tonight, uh, we're going to be discussing its typology, the tabernacle's typology and other New Testament theological usage. We're going to focus mostly on the typology here tonight. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but we, if we have time, we may touch on some other New Testament theological usage as well. We'll see how much we can get through here tonight. All right. So um, I, uh, as I was thinking through um, what we're going to discuss here this evening, Search. Dr. Neely, great to have you on the news hour. Uh, there. There we go. I'm unmuted now. Um, <clears throat> everyone can hear me? Yes? Good? Okay. Um, so I ran across this, this meme that really spoke to me just recently. And I thought I would share it with you guys, um, <clears throat> not because I think it's applicable to you, but because I do find it to be applicable to my life. So let me share this meme with you. It's a picture of uh, everybody's good friend Yoda. And it goes like this. Now that I have children, I really understand, understand the scene in The Return of the Jedi where Yoda is so tired of answering Luke's questions that he just up and dies. Can anybody with kids, you know, affirm the truth of that sentiment right there? Um, there are times when my kids just won't stop asking me questions. Well, um, I have not had that experience with teaching in a quick class with you guys. All the questions that I've gotten from you have been very appropriate. Uh, they have not overwhelmed me. I've had some really good discussions with a couple of you, um, and you brought up some excellent points uh, in between our classes. So I just want to say thank you for the dialogue that I've been able to have with some of you guys. 
But there's one question that nobody has asked yet, and maybe it's because I've warned you that it's coming here tonight, but nobody's really asked this question of me yet, but we're going to address it tonight. The question is, so what does it all mean? In the tabernacle, the way it's constructed, the way that it's built, the things that it's made out of, all of that stuff, what does it all symbolize? Is there is there symbolic deeper meaning in all the, the pieces and the parts of the tabernacle? Is there something more that we should be understanding than just the procedure of how all this was supposed to be built? Well, before I answer that question, uh, I would like to point out the fact that when we seek for deeper meanings, quote unquote, in the text, we can sometimes get ourselves into trouble. There is a danger in uh, in looking at the Bible as though we need to look for deeper, more significant meanings than what the text actually tells us. Let me give you a couple of examples there on the screen there. Um, for example, um, <clears throat> some of you may be familiar with the, the church father Origen, who lived in the second century, second to third century. Um, and uh, on, on his uh, sermon about Numbers 33, um, that, by the way, Numbers 33 is just a list of places where all where the Hebrews camped from the time they left Egypt all the way to reaching the promised land. It's a list of 42 city names, effectively. And it just says they went from here and then they camped here. And then they went here and they camped here. And then they went here and they camped there. So Origen <clears throat> says this about that passage, Numbers chapter 33. He says, so the children of Israel went forth from Egypt and setting out from Ramses, they came to Succoth. In our language, Ramses means confused agitation or agitation of the worm. By this, it's made clear that everyone in this world is set in agitation and disorder and also in corruption, for this is what the worm means. The soul should not remain in them. And he goes on and he makes these spiritual applications to each of the city places based on meanings that may not be there at all, might be from another language entirely. And he says, these 42 cities all represent stages of the Christian's growth of their soul. Now, that's a deeper meaning, I guess. Is it actually there in the text? I don't think so. Granted, he is what one of these guys that we consider church fathers, but I think he was doing something with the text that was not probably appropriate. So let me give you another example of, of this idea of seeking for deeper meanings in the text. Let me give you one more example, okay? Uh, it's the example of Augustine. <clears throat> you guys are familiar with him. He was the Bishop of Hippo. He lived in the fourth and fifth century AD. Um, and he gave an interesting interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? So, you all know the parable of Good Samaritan. I don't need to go over that. But let me tell you what each of the elements in that parable meant to Augustine, right? The man who fell into robber's hands, he said that represents Adam. Jerusalem, where he was headed, represents heaven. Jericho, where he was coming from, represents man's mortality. The robbers are clearly the devil and his demons. The attack on them or on the man, Adam, 
is, uh, is when Adam is stripped of his immortality by being persuaded to sin. The fact that he's left for dead obviously represents the fact that Adam has some knowledge of God, but he's oppressed by sin. The priests clearly represent the law. The Levites, oh, they represent the prophets. The Good Samaritan, oh, he is a figure for Christ. He bandages the man's wounds, right? And that means that Christ is seeking to restrain Adam's sin. The oil that he pours on him obviously represents hope. The wine that he pours on him and, and offers to him is clearly uh, a fervent spirit. The donkey must, of course, represent Jesus' incarnation. I'm not sure why. Uh, the man being placed on the donkey um, represents Adam's belief in the incarnation. The inn that he goes to and drops the, the, the man off uh, is clearly the church. And the fact that, it, that the next day um, he goes and he tries to, um, to, tries to pay for the man's care, obviously that represents Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the two coins that the Samaritan pays to the innkeeper, uh, well, they could represent the two precepts of love, or maybe they represent this life and the next life to come, right? He's not quite sure on that one. It's, it's an even, even tougher one to figure out. And the innkeeper, oh, the innkeeper represents Paul. I'm not sure why. So can we can we admit to one another <laughs> that there are some ways of reading the Bible that just don't make any sense? They they seek a deeper meaning that is not actually there. So these two examples are examples of what is known as allegorical interpretation of scripture. Allegorical interpretation uh, is a method of interpreting scripture that attempts to uncover these deeper spiritual truths behind the plain meaning of the text and its individual words. So each element in the text or even each word in the text can be correlated with some other meaning if you're spiritually mature enough to see it. Okay, so <clears throat> this is. This is, uh, this is one way of interpreting the Bible. Uh, it's not one that I subscribe to. Rather, I believe in normal interpretation. We sometimes refer to it as literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. The reason we use the word normal is because we think the Bible, we think God communicates to us in the normal way that language is used, in its context. Uh, words mean what they mean, literally. Words, uh, as everything happens within its historical context that adds understanding and depth to meaning. Uh, everything uh, it needs to be understand, understood in terms of its grammatical structure, how language rolls out its meaning. So normal interpretation is a method of interpreting scripture that endeavors to let the meaning of the text come naturally out of the text rather than being imposed on it. We call that exegesis, and being imposed on the text, we call that eisegesis. So normal interpretation seeks to understand the text in its original context as the author meant it to be understood to its original audience. It's only after that work, that study, that exegesis, letting the meaning come from the text itself, it's only after that work is done that we can then make appropriate applications 
of the text to us today. Okay? So, <clears throat> all of that leads us to our discussion of the tabernacle. Okay? So, what are we supposed to do? with it? Well, tonight we're going to dig a little bit into uh, hermeneutics. We're going to dig a little bit into how you read and study and understand your Bible. Because even though I've listed off all these dangers, and uh, even though I've, I've tried to heighten your sense of awareness about whether we're letting the meaning come from the text or we're imposing meaning on the text, even though I've done all of that, the fact of the matter is the New Testament does use imagery and elements of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priesthood in order to teach theological truth in certain places. It does show up. There are times when the New Testament draws those correlations, and it would be incumbent upon us as Bible students, right? We're sitting under the authority of the text. We want to study it. We want to understand it. We want to know what it has to say to us. It behooves us to understand these, these things appropriately as Scripture describes them. So we are going to be discussing those things here tonight. But before we get into the tabernacle itself, and, and just so you all know, um, before I, <laughs> as I was planning out how I wanted to discuss these things with you guys, I spared all of you uh, this discussion in the first session, because I'm not going to lie, I was a little afraid that if I talked about hermeneutics, that some of your eyes might glaze over just a little bit, and some of you might not come back for weeks two and three, even though this is all very foundational in trying to understand what relevance the tabernacle has to us today and what more than just knowing what the text says and knowing what God designed for that time period, how does it have any relevance for us today? So, so I, I purposefully delayed this discussion until this session here tonight so that if you, uh, if, if you end up, you know, with that glazed look on your face, I only see about four or five windows here on my computer, so I may not see all of the glazing. But, uh, but if it happens to you and you happen to uh, click off and say, well, I'll just listen to this while I'm doing something else later, uh, the recording, <laughs> then that's okay. But it is important information, and, and, I, and I want you guys uh, to understand some of this stuff. So we are going to be discussing an element of Bible study that is known as typology. Oh, I was going to give you an example of the fact that the New Testament does this, by the way, just, just an overall. This is uh, this is just a, a micro example of several other uh, passages in the text where it does the same thing. Hebrews 8, 4, and 5 says, priests who offer gifts according to the law serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God. You remember, as we were going through Exodus, the, the discussion of him going up the mountain all those six times, right? Um, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews references this, and he says he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. The pattern, that's right, the tabernacle, and all of the things related to it in some way serve as a copy, a shadow, a picture, a pattern of something else. 
In other words, there is additional layers of meaning there that we can learn something about by our study of what we call typology. We are going to be discussing this for the next several minutes, all right? So typology in the New Testament. First of all, what is typology? Typology is an area of hermeneutics. Uh, you might call that Bible interpretation or the, the rules that govern your Bible interpretation, your way of reading scripture. It's an area of hermeneutics involving the study of correlations between Old Testament truths and New Testament truths. And it, actually, the way that I wrote it there is more accurate than what I just said. Old Testament elements, New Testament elements, thus Old Testament types and New Testament antitypes. All right. Or you might call them shadows and fulfillments. Right. OK, so Old Testament types, New Testament antitypes, Old Testament shadows, New Testament fulfillments. So that's kind of a definition broadly of what typology is in the in this in uh, your schematics of hermeneutics okay but let's dive into uh some actual greek here tonight all right we're going to talk about how the new testament uses that word type or that word anti-type you see because these terms come from the text we're not making these terms up they're not just fun ways of saying it uh, no, they actually come from the text. So let me give you every single New Testament example of the word type and anti-type. In the New Testament, type is used 15 times and anti-type is used two times. Now, the catch is to notice how that word is translated in each of these occurrences, because we're going to draw some meaning from this after we go through this. OK, so, uh, for example, <clears throat> In John chapter 20, verse 25, it's translated, the word type shows up there, the nail types in his hands. That's translated as marks, the mark of the nails in Jesus' hands, right? Acts says the types which you were made to worship or the images, okay? So it corresponds to another idol or another god and so you have this little graven image that is a representation of it. Acts 7 is almost a direct quote of what we just read from Hebrews. Acts 23, you see, wrote a letter with the following content. That's the word type, okay? So the word type is being used as a way of saying, I wrote something to you to this effect or following this pattern or of this kind of saying, right? In Romans 5, it says Adam was a type of one who was to come. Your Bible, if you have a King James, might use the word figure there instead of type. But it's the same. In Greek, it's tupos or tupos, right? Uh, Romans 6, um, obviously you see the word is translated as form. In 1 Corinthians 10, it's translated as examples, that's the one you see probably the most. As you look down the rest of the list, uh, the Bible uses the word type uh, to refer or to be translated to convey the idea of something being a, an example that you are to follow 
or a role model that you follow. And then if you uh, if you look all the way down at the bottom of the page there, let's jump to anti-type, the two times where that's used. Uh, the, the first one there is 1 Peter 3.21. It, it is translated, the word anti-type is translated as corresponding to baptism. Now That now saves you, okay? So it, again, it's that idea of one thing representing or, or being... Uh, figured in another thing. And then, of course, Hebrews 9.24, it says that Christ did not enter into holy places made by hands, a mere copy of the true one. Again, so you kind of see some of the the range of, of ways that that word is translated in the Bible. When we run into the word type, sometimes it means mark sometimes it means image sometimes it means example sometimes it means role model sometimes it means just corresponding or it can mean copy the word that it, it comes from actually um or that we think it might come from actually has to do with uh to strike something okay so if if i <laughs> that's a terrible example that just came to mind i was going to say if i if I hit someone too hard, and no, I'm not picturing Chris in my mind. If I hit someone too hard, they're going to have an impression left in their hand of my knuckles, right? Yes, you you do that and you leave an impression. That's a type of this, okay? Same idea. Or you strike a coin, you mint a coin, and you leave an impression in it. It's the impression of the mint itself, right? So it's the same idea that the word type is that it's something that is corresponding to something else, a mold, an image stamped, a, a model, an outline corresponding to an original. Now, obviously, you can see type, as it appears in the New Testament, or anti-type, is not a technical term. Whenever you see it, it doesn't always mean the exact same thing. It it has a a, a range of meaning that is always similar but it doesn't always necessarily represent a theological type that we need to go search the Old Testament for, okay? But there are some occurrences where that is true. I've highlighted the ones on your uh, on your uh, list there <clears throat> that are in reference to the tabernacle, but there are other ones in, in the New Testament as well that bring out the idea that it's more than just an example, more than just a copy, it's something that truly corresponds to something in the Old Testament. But this idea is developed even better in, um, in the way that the, the New Testament uses some other words other than type and anti-type. Some of these examples are even more telling. Sorry, I kind of got ahead of myself here on the list or on my presentation. One of those other words that gives us even more understanding is uh, hupodigma. Right. Okay. So again, you see the idea of example, example, copy, copies, example, and then the word skia. Okay. Skia is usually translated as shadow. Now you've seen on all three lists that those words all pop up in one verse. Did you notice Hebrews chapter eight, verse five, all of those terms are used in reference to the tabernacle. So, if we draw all these things together, 
we begin to get an idea that the New Testament is conveying to us the fact that there are some Old Testament uh, elements that are meant to correspond to elements in the New Testament in some kind of way. The question becomes, how do we tell what is and isn't valid? How do we tell what is appropriate Bible study versus just making stuff up <laughs> like Augustine did? How do we know that we are in the ballpark for what's appropriate handling of the word of God? Well, I would propose six characteristics to you. This is a compilation of several other uh, Bible scholars' uh, understandings of these things. It, it represents some of my own thoughts, but it's also representative of some other scholars' work. I just want to put that out there. So if you've seen this before, um, I am borrowing from smarter people than me. So let's talk about the six characteristics of a biblical type, okay? In each of the occasions where we look at something that the that appears to correspond between the New Testament and the Old Testament in a meaningful theological way, it's going to have all six of these elements to it, okay? So it's going to have resemblance. That's obvious, right? There are some things that resemble one in the Old, Test uh, in the Old Testament that resemble something in the New Testament, but it can't just be something flimsy like, like uh, Jesus and... Uh, David both went to Jerusalem. I mean, that's, yeah, that's similar. Sure. Does that mean that David is a type of Jesus? N no, we, we need something more substantial than that to prove the idea that there's a correspondence between these things. And it needs to be natural. It needs to be not forced, of course, because we're trying to draw that meaning from the text as opposed to imposing it on the text. Not everything that has that similarity or correspondence is a type in a technical theological sense, though people do this all the time, as though we're supposed to draw meaning about Jesus from studying something like the life of Joseph, okay? Yes, there's a lot of similarity there. Yes, there's a lot of things that we need to learn about how Jesus uh, is is in 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 many ways greater and better and want a more wonderful than Joseph or some of their experiences were similar. But does that mean that Joseph was a type of Jesus? Well, there's a few other criteria that we need to think about here. Okay, so not just resemblance, but also historical tangibility. Okay, these are real persons, events, or things in the Old Testament. Uh, that are types of real persons, events, and things in the New Testament. We're not seeking allegories. We're not looking for something beyond the text. We're looking for things that are actual nouns, right? We're looking for things that are true to real life and are actually described in reality. The next idea is not only that there's a similarity, not only that they're actual person, places, and things, but also the idea of heightening, okay? So the Old Testament type corresponding to the New Testament anti-type always has a sense of heightening or bettering or deepening, okay? So the New Testament anti-type is always greater or superior to the Old Testament type. The New Testament anti-type is always more substantial, more significant, more theologically 
definitive, as though God is giving us, as though God is giving us a sense of the progress of his revelation. You guys are familiar with that term in Bible study, right? God didn't give us everything at once. He gave it to us slowly over years worth of time. And slowly we begin to understand more and more as God gives us more information. So there's that sense of heightening between the old and the new. And then there's an idea of foreshadowing as well, okay? Or prefiguring, you might describe it. So a type always looks forward in time to the anti-type. In a sense, it's predictive. It's, uh, It's a physical illustration, so to speak of prophecy. So similarly to like when God would tell the prophets to go, you know, go buy a brand new belt and I want you to stuff it in a crevice of a rock for, you know, a year and then bring it out and show how destroyed it is and wear it around and show people how messed up that belt is because that's an illustration of what I think about this, that, or the other. Well, you know how God would do that. Well, similarly, God is using this type and anti-type correlation in order to predictively show meaning in an illustrative way. Now, of course, we we addressed a, a little bit last week the idea, could Old Testament readers know what was being predicted? No, probably not. We're not saying that. But we, using hindsight, because it because it's in the text, can know that God saw fit to make that correlation for us to understand today. That, of course, leads straight into the fifth one, which is divine design. Okay, so this isn't something that just happened by accident. God is the one who designed these types and anti-type correlations. God wanted us to see it. We're not trying to make stuff up. We're trying to see what God actually put in the text for us to be able to see and understand. They were designed by God to correlate over centuries and all the things that God needed to do throughout that time in order for it to unfold in that way was on purpose. So antitypes were the fulfillment and heightening of its corresponding Old Testament type. The New Testament points out types and antitypes that allow us to see that divine meaning in the historical reality that the original participants couldn't. Which, of course, leads us to the last point, and I think this is maybe the most important point for us as Bible students, is the fact that it has to come from the text. Okay, Identifying types and antitypes has to come out of the text itself. There needs to be a New Testament reason why we say this corresponds to that and we can see this meaning in it because the New Testament tells us. See, we don't. God doesn't give us typology or the, the concept of types in order for us to just use it as a hermeneutical method to say anything with similarity. Obviously, we can draw all these meanings out of it that we want, right? Whatever we see that's similar, sure, let's let's see the connections, let's make that a whole sermon. No, I don't think that's why God gives us this. There's there's also, on kind of the other end of the spectrum, those who would say that we need to limit ourselves only to those that are explicitly stated in the New Testament to be types or even use the word 
type in reference to it, or whether there's a mixture of both explicit and implicit types that are described in the New Testament. I believe that the New Testament must in some way identify that an Old Testament element is typical, doesn't have to use that word necessarily, but is typical in teaching us something that the New Testament is trying to convey to us. Okay, so all of that, that's a lot of information. Again, a lot of talking, I'm sorry. But here is a basic definition of what is a biblical type. Dr. Zuck describes it this way. He says, a type may be defined as an Old Testament person, event, or thing having historical realities designed by God to prefigure or foreshadow in a preparatory way a real person, event, or thing so designated in the New Testament and that corresponds to and fulfills or heightens the type. Pretty much what we just went through. <laughs> All right, so that's your definition of what is a valid type or how to be able to determine what is a valid type type. All right. So <clears throat> I want to make sure. I see some extra words on my screen. I don't know if you guys can see them. It looks like it may be a glitch. I, I hope you can't. Uh, but if you can, please just ignore it. Um, all right. So let's begin applying what we've learned to our idea of the tabernacle, to how we look at the tabernacle, okay? Again, another quote by Dr. Zuck, the tabernacle is a type, but that does not mean that every small item in the construction of the tabernacle in some way depicted a New Testament truth, okay? So the tabernacle is a type. But not every teeny little element of the tabernacle necessarily needs to correspond to some New Testament truth. So we need to apply our six criteria to everything that it looks as though might be one of these deeper meanings or more truth that we might be able to find. All right. So. Let's look at the tabernacle itself. I believe the tabernacle itself. Oh, and by the way, there's there's several other types that you could find in the New Testament that correlate to Old Testament things that you can study and you can learn something about. Um, we're, we're only talking about how all of this typology that we just went through applies to the tabernacle, okay? And the elements surrounding the tabernacle. So we, we're... We're moving out of the study of typology now, and we're moving back into tabernacle truth here tonight, okay? So, uh, the tabernacle itself is a type. Hebrews 5, or excuse me, 8, 5, and chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, all point to the idea of the tabernacle itself being a type. It's a type of the true heavenly things where God's presence is. You remember how Moses was told that he was to build the tabernacle after the pattern of what he saw when he was with God. God showed him something. God showed him something heavenly, the text tells us, 
We don't know for sure if this is necessarily a representation of the throne room of God in heaven. Some people have proposed that that's the way in which it's a type. We don't know for sure if that's exactly it or if God showed him a pattern, almost like a blueprint of what the tabernacle was supposed to look like that in some way represents these heavenly things. We're not exactly sure, but the tabernacle itself is a copy. It corresponds to an original, and that original is something heavenly. Um, Hebrews 9 also says that Jesus didn't enter a holy of holies. Uh, he didn't enter a holy of holies that was just a copy, that was just a shadow. He entered into heaven, into God's presence himself. Again, he's, he's saying Jesus didn't walk into the tabernacle. Jesus walked into what the tabernacle was a copy of in heaven, right? So, um, again, you see all of our six criteria there. You see the idea of that resemblance. You see the idea of historical tangibility. These are real things. You see that heightening tabernacle is not as great as heaven, right? Um, foreshadowing what Jesus was going to do. We see the idea of God's divine design, and we see, an, obviously, a New Testament identification. So as we're going through these types that we can see of the tabernacle, I want you to remember those six criteria that we went through. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> all right. The second type that we can see in the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. The second is the identification of the Holy of Holies with the New Testament type being, or anti-type being the place of God's presence. Hebrews 10 verse 20 draws that correlation for us. It says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his Flesh. Okay, so he opened it up into the place where God dwells. Okay, so we see that idea of the curtain separating the place where God is from the place where people are. And Jesus opened that curtain for us into a holy of holies that is greater, that is the fulfillment of, that is not just corresponding to, but, but has been foreshadowed by the Old Testament tabernacle. The third type, the third type that I think we can see in the tabernacle itself, the veil, the veil. Um, again, I actually meant to read uh, verse 19 the last time, but what we just read about uh, the new and living way being corresponding with the curtain, the veil, that actually uh, is, uh, is the text we should be looking at for this one. Uh, that separated God from people. Obviously, you can see the correlation for both of those there from that text. Um, but Jesus is the new and living way, the new and living access point, entry point into the presence of the Father, right? The fourth, and for those of you that may have missed it last week, there's our lovely picture of our, our high priest, Katolka. Um, <clears throat> the fourth type that I believe that we can see this similarity between, the correspondence between, is the service of the high priest. 
Now, this gets us pretty deep into the argument of Hebrews. If you haven't spent a lot of time in Hebrews, after this study, you have the tools, hopefully, to, to be able to do so a little bit more in depth than you might have before. Um, essentially, the writer of Hebrews is, is, um, is trying to show to the Hebrew people why Jesus is better than everything that has made their relationship with God possible uh, that they have known from, from the Old Testament. Everything from, from uh, who, uh, uh, who they got the law from, Moses, right? How Jesus is, is better than Moses uh, through Jesus being the high priest and how he serves in his, uh, in his mediation of the new covenant. So the idea is, Throughout Hebrews, that the writer is trying to show Jesus is better than this element. Jesus fulfills this element. Jesus is better than that. Okay, so when we get to the section on the high priest and the service of the high priest, he draws all these really cool correlations between what the high priest would have done in serving in the tabernacle and what Jesus has done or how he served in his ministry of atonement for all for all ages. Right. So, uh, for example, um, the service of the high priest was typical of Jesus' service as our great high priest. Okay, so just the fact that there's a high priest, there's one particularly identified uh, mediator of the covenant, right? The high priest is the only one who can go into the Holy of Holies, and that only on one day, right? He's the high priest, the one who has been chosen for that service. Well, Jesus isn't just a high priest. He's the great high priest who can identify with what you're feeling and experiencing. He isn't untouchable. He's even better than any priest that you've never managed to have a conversation with, right? He is better than all the high priests you have ever known. He goes on and he says that, of course, priests... Uh, need to be blameless, need to be clean, need to be uh, of, of good spiritual condition, right? And he draws that correlation, and he says Jesus was sinless, and he was perfect. A priest, of course, is appointed because he was of the tribe of Levi, right? He's a Levite. These are the order of the Levites. Well, in chapter 5 and in chapter 7, the writer of the Hebrews draws out this idea that Jesus, that the high priest's service as a Levite was typical of Jesus, points forward to the antitype of Jesus in that Jesus was of an order and a service, not the Levites, but of an even better order and service. And he identifies Jesus as being of the same order as Melchizedek, who came before and who was a king, and who was better than the Mosaic or the Levitical priesthood. And he says, see, there's that correlation there, but Jesus is even better. Then he also points to the idea that priests mediate the Mosaic covenant, and he says Jesus mediates an even better covenant, right? And then he says that Priests offer sacrifices while Jesus' sacrifice made perfect atonement eternally in chapters 9, 23 through 10. Um, and he, he makes this idea that the atonement Jesus offers 
is not temporary. It's not necessary for it to be repeated. It is once for all time, right? So we can see the typological or type, type, I just screwed that up, but the typical way in which Jesus is the fulfillment, the heightening uh, by God's design of what the Old Testament uh, was showing us and how Jesus brings that entirely to a new level, a deeper understanding, a better understanding. All right, so the fourth or the fifth, excuse me, type that I think we can see in the tabernacle is the sacrificial offerings. Um, I think Hebrews 9, 9 to 10, actually indicates that all of the sacrificial offerings were types of Jesus' death and sacrifice and resurrection on our behalf. The, that is the New Testament anti-type. So each of the sacrifices that we talked about, if you remember the sacrifices, we talked about the sin offering, the guilt offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, that Jesus' death serves as the anti-type to each one of those things as well. I think Hebrews identifies for us and it's corroborated in other places in scripture. Let's look at a couple of these, all right? Because I, I find this to be pretty fascinating. So watch this, all right? Let's talk about each of these five sacrifices. I know there's a lot of text there, but bear with me. So the sin offering. Let's start with the sin offering because in order to have a relationship with God, you got to deal with the sin first. That makes you acceptable once that is dealt with, and then you enter into fellowship. So we're going to talk first about the sin and the guilt offering, how those things were types of what Jesus' sacrifice was going to accomplish. So um, notice the sin offering. I think it's identified in Hebrews chapter 13, 11 to 12. Look at what the text says. It says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. A couple of things, I don't know if you remember, that we talked about in relation to the sacrifices, but uh, the sin offering, one of the, one of the unique elements about the sin offering was the fact that after the sin offering was made, all the rest of what was left of that animal was supposed to be taken outside the camp because it was considered holy and it was burned outside the camp. So it's interesting to me that the writer of Hebrews identifies that idea that Jesus suffered outside the camp. His death, in a way, was the antitype of the sin offering. He has the sin offering in mind when he's talking about Jesus' ministry, right? The sin offering is what he is trying to bring to mind for those Hebrews who were reading this. They would know which one's burned outside the camp, right? They would know which sacrifice has to happen or has to happen in that way. And it would have been the sin offering. Now, also another element of the sin offering that, uh, that you may remember is the idea that 
when you when you sacrifice that animal, and this is true for others as well, but when you sacrifice that animal, you're supposed to lay your hands on its head, in a sense, transfer, or transferring the, your sin onto that animal. Remember? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 brings that idea out. There's lots of other places in the New Testament that you could see the same thing too. Uh, this one is a is a um, not a direct quote from Isaiah 53, but it's awful close. Um, and it says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Again, that idea of transference, okay? The sin that I have goes to the animal. The, the purity that is wrought by the sacrifice is accrued to me. The righteousness comes to me. The death goes to that animal, right? So... Uh, the sin offering to me appears to be uh, a legitimate type for us to consider uh, what Jesus' sacrifice did for us. All right. Let's look at the guilt offering. The guilt offering. I don't know if you remember the guilt offering, but just a quick, quick reminder. Uh, whenever someone offers a guilt offering, they have to bring compensation right? They have to bring an animal. They have to appraise the value of the animal. And then they have to offer not just the animal in compensation, not just the sin offering either. You have to bring also a certain amount of money represented by the value of that animal, one fifth of it, give it to the priest. The idea is to make the situation right. Compensation for the wrong, the injustice that has been done, there is a there is a, a sense of the debt being paid. All right, in the guilt offering. Well, Hebrews chapter ten verse fourteen says, "For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified." Okay, you were imperfect, and now you are perfected. The guilt has been washed away. Mark 10, Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, what? A ransom, a compensation, a payment for many. 1 Corinthians 6 says, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The idea of a payment being made, right? The compensation uh, being uh, what restores the the sense of justice and the, the washing away the guilt. Now, and then Jude 1, I like, I like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, right? The idea that Jesus' sacrifice makes us faultless before God. Isn't that a beautiful idea? The sacrifice of Jesus perfected forever. This is the idea of justification, right? That Jesus' death, Jesus' payment on our behalf washed away the guilt, paid the debt, and then presents us, makes us, allows us entrance into a perfect relationship with the Father because of the price, the compensation that he paid. So 
The sin offering, the guilt offering are both typical of what Jesus' sacrifice was, uh, was accomplishing. But Jesus' sacrifice was better. It pointed towards what Jesus was going to do. It made it um, made it clearer and better, theologically, definitively showed us what God needed, what God wanted, what God desired for us. Okay, um, the third offering. Let's talk about the grain offering. Um, <clears throat> interestingly enough, uh, the grain offering, if you remember, had to be given with uh, purely ground uh, flour, right, grain that's been either cooked in a very pure way um, and, and added certain elements to it to make it even more pure, um, but it had to be of the best possible substance to begin with. Um, interestingly, in Hebrews 10, verse 8, it, said, it says this, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Now stop and consider this for a second. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here, and the quote that he's referencing there, is the idea that there is something that God desires that's even better quality than sacrifice. There's something of even higher value to God than sacrifices and offering and burnt offerings. We'll look at what that is in just a moment. But that idea of how God has uh, desires something even better than sacrifice, of the highest quality more than sacrifice, also should bring out the idea of the grain offering. Let's look at the fourth one, the burnt offering. The burnt offering, I believe, was a type of Jesus' sacrifice as well. Because in Jesus' sacrifice, he's offering himself as a complete, perfect, whole substitute, wholly consecrated to God. Let's read Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. It says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, The sacrifice that happened daily, well, as part of God's description of the burnt offering, there's two major elements that, you, that should perk up your ears there. One is the idea that it has to be offered daily. The burnt offering was the one that they offered daily, morning and evening, right? It had to be offered every day, God said. But also, you should, you should notice the idea of its completeness. The whole animal is burned to God, right? The whole thing is given to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. It all goes up in the flames to him. Well, also interestingly, the New Testament does describe Jesus' sacrifice as a sweet-smelling aroma. Notice Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. That should bring to mind the burnt offering, right? I once had a Bible teacher ask me, what does is, uh, God smell like? 
What does God smell like? Anybody got a guess? <laughs> Barbecue was the answer I was given. Because whenever you go see God, whenever you go worship God, at least for the Jewish people at the tap at the temple, the what you would smell whenever you're in God's presence would be the burning of that sacrifice, right? It would be a sweet-smelling aroma, particularly pleasing to God, wholly given to him. Well, Jesus was a sweet-smelling aroma to God, the perfect substitute, completely and wholly given to God. Um, <clears throat> remember, the grain offering, for the one who's offering it, is all about relationship. It's thanksgiving. The burnt offering is all about how we are completely, completely his. We belong to him entirely. The fellowship offering or the peace offering is all about our peace between him. You can't get to the grain offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering until you've already done the sin offering and the guilt offering. Three, four, and five are all related to an ongoing relationship in fellowship with God, right? Well, the fellowship offering is almost the culmination of that. If you remember, one of the cool elements of the fellowship offering is that as you make this offering and then you take what's left of that offering and you're supposed to eat it, you're supposed to eat it with other people who are clean. You're supposed to eat it with your friends and your family that have come to worship with you, right? The priest gets his portion, God gets his portion, and then we take the rest of that bull or that lamb or whatever, and we go and we eat it and we have to eat it in the same day. So it needs to be a rather large party. This is a fellowship, not just between us and God. We have this relationship, but it's also a fellowship between us and others who are in relationship with God as well, right? So Jesus' sacrifice does the same thing. Jesus' sacrifice makes peace, not only between us and God, but with us and others, but it does it in an even better way. Notice Hebrews 10 brings this idea out. It says, now where there is remission of these, that's sins it's been talking about, there is no longer an offering for sin. So once sin is dealt with, you don't need an offering. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, and it goes on, and it brings out that idea that we enter into the holiest places, we enter into the holy place by the blood of the sacrifice, boldly having confidence in our peace between us and God. Colossians talks about that too. Again, many other places in the New Testament. But Colossians says, by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, that's Jesus, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus buys peace between you and God. And then in Ephesians 2, it says, for he himself is our peace, is our peace, not just with God, watch this, who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So it's bringing, the New Testament is bringing out this idea that Jesus' sacrifice is the antitype to the sacrifice of the peace offering in that Jesus' sacrifice 
also makes peace between us, the worshiper, us, the redeemed, us, the atoned for, and God, but not only there, also horizontally as well with others who have peace with God. So all five of the sacrifices bring out this idea of Jesus' sacrifice, not only doing better for atonement, but also doing better in every way to make peace between us and God, wholly belonging to him. I think that that is a pretty interesting concept for us to consider, that in the Old Testament, God was pointing forward, saying, these things are what I need you to do now. It will atone. It won't take away. But there's coming a day when there will be a perfect sin offering, a complete compensation for injustice, a, not, a guilt offering that's even better. There will be a more perfect and higher quality offering that you could never offer. There will be someone that is so completely and wholly belonging to God on your behalf that he will put you in perfect fellowship with God and not only with God, but with others who also love him. All these things point forward to Jesus and what he did. On our behalf. So these are the types that I believe are pretty easily defensible in the um, as they're identified in the New Testament. We also said that uh, we would discuss not only the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices types, we'd also talk just a little bit and I mean a really little bit as we end here about how it's used as illustrations, not types. These are illustrations. You see the tabernacle is referred to in the New Testament by more than just um, uh, in terms of just typology. It's also used in uh, some ways to illustrate New Testament truth. Okay. So, I believe uh, some, and again, there's there's more that probably could be said about all this. I'm going to go through it quickly. But the priests, as they served in the tabernacle, are an illustration of believers. They're used in the New Testament as an illustration of you and of me in a couple of ways, or at least a couple of ways. One, direct access to God. No earthly mediator. First Peter 2, verse 5 brings that idea out. Did you know that the New Testament describes you and your relationship to God as though you are a priest? That's right. We refer to this as the, the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. There's no one that needs to stand between you and God, at least not on earth, except Jesus, who is not on earth, right? You don't need a man standing there helping you make all these things come about. No, you have direct access to God. Um, so that's that's one aspect of it. The second is that um, the, the New Testament also in, in 1 Peter also 
describes you as a priest in terms of your commission to share the gospel. Did you know that? So in a sense, the priesthood is used as an illustration of how you are supposed to be taking the gospel to everyone else. So you function as a priest for other people. Listen to this verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim what God has done on your behalf. So that idea of the priesthood teaches us a little bit about what our life as believers is like or can be or what God has called us to be. And the last illustration from the tabernacle in the New Testament that I want to identify tonight is this. The tabernacle serves as an illustration of God dwelling or how God dwells or where God dwells. We see this pop up a couple of times in the New Testament. The first one is in John chapter 1, verse 14, when it tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word that gets used for tent or tabernacle when it's translating the Old Testament that way. The idea is that when where God sets his tent is the place where God chooses to dwell. So God, in the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh, tabernacled or tented or chose a living place among us, he tabernacled with us. The second place that it pops up is at the very end. Revelation chapter 21, when it tells us that John heard a voice that said, Behold, now the tabernacle of God is with man. So the tabernacle, the tent, the place where God lives in our midst is drawn up again in the book of Revelation to remind us that God's place of his, his chosen place of dwelling is with and among us. Not off somewhere distant, cosmically, world spinning in space and balancing galaxies on fingertips. No, the place of God's dwelling, his tabernacle, his tent, his home, is among us for eternity. So, now that we have talked about all of these connections, these ways that the tabernacle points us towards a greater and more fulfilled and more definitive understanding of what God has been doing throughout history. What do we do with all this? Well, the writer of Hebrews, two times, after digging into all these connections, two times he brings this idea out. He says, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God, who has made a way, not just in the Old Testament, but even better, more complete, more fulfilled, more heightened, more beautiful, more wonderful, more complete, more eternal. God has made a way 
for us to walk into his presence and have complete certainty that we're accepted, that we're welcomed, that we're loved, that we're home. Let us draw near. How many times we don't? So my prayer for you, friend, as we finish this study, is to remember that all of this points us to the fact that God has drawn you in, that God has made a way that God wants you with him, not just in eternity, but every single day here and now. I pray that you walk every day with him. I pray that you hold fast to the confession of your hope in Jesus. I pray that you consider how to stir other Christians up to love and good works. I pray that you don't neglect the meeting of other Christians together. I pray that you encourage one another. I pray that you draw near to God in perfect fellowship daily, in prayer, in his word, in study, in his love for you. Thanks for walking through all this with me. Let's pray real quick. Father, I pray for everyone who, who uh, made it this far. <laughs> Father, you, um, in your word, you describe these things as deep truths, uh, heavy things, mature things to study. And Lord, I pray that you would mature each and every one of us as we study your word, as we draw near to you in your word and in prayer. I pray that you would uh, strengthen us and that you would grow us and that you would help us to have a better appreciation for Jesus and all that he accomplished on our behalf. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that love you more because of our study of these things. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.